In Revelation 10, we have the God angel, the little book, and the end of all things foretold. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God given for our prophet, Revelation chapter 10, starting at verse 1. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go, and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And thus far the reading of God's inspired word from Revelation chapter 10. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of his holy word. If you have your handout, please take and look at it with me for a moment, and we'll discuss where we are in this glorious and blessed book, which the Lord says those who read and those who hear it are blessed. Now, we've looked at the introduction to the book, the first vision of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. We've seen Christ's letters in chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches of Asia, those things that were then and would shortly come to pass. Then we have a second vision, chapter 4, the whole chapter, the preface to these prophecies. John is ascending up into a throne room where the Lamb and his attendants are. Remember, 
those four beasts and the twenty and four elders and all the innumerable angels. The throne room scene, in other words. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 1, we have the first general prophecy. In verses 1 through 14, or the whole of chapter 5, we have a preparation for this general prophecy, namely, that the Lamb is worthy to take the book. Now remember, that book was sealed up with seven seals, written inside and out. It was in the right hand of God who sat upon his throne, and our Lord himself, the Lamb, was the only one found worthy to take that book and to unseal it. Then, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we had the execution of the seals of that book. We had the horses and their riders, seals 1 through 4. Then in chapter 6, verses 9 through 14, we had the second part of its execution, seals 5 and 6, the martyrs and the wicked men. Then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, we had the consolation, the sealing of God's elect before judgment. Remember, the book is being unsealed, but the elect are being sealed in their foreheads. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7, we saw the judgment was staved off. Christ prepared to seal his elect. We had the sealing of the elect in verses 4 through 8, the ideal Israel, or a representative Israel as the chosen people of God. Then in verses 9 through 17, we had the innumerable elect, those all sealed, glorified, praising and serving God, confirmed and shepherded by Christ. Then last week, we looked at chapter 8, verse 1, the execution of this second vision, the seventh seal, silence in heaven for half an hour. Then we began last week looking at the third vision, chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. We have the preparation for this second prophecy, the seven angels and trumpets, the intercessor angel, remember he's offering incense, then he takes coals off of the altar and throws them down upon the earth, the intercessor angel. We have the prayers of the saints offered up together with the incense of this angel, and the requests of those saints are answered in what follows. That brings us to the second general prophecy, which runs from chapter 8, verse 7, through chapter 11, verse 19. In chapter 8, 7 through 12, we had the first part, trumpets 1 through 4, the earthly judgments and curses that are sent to warn. Chapter 8, verses 13 through chapter 9, verse 21, we had the execution in the second part, the infernal armies and the unrepentant men, also called the first two woes. Then now we're looking at chapter 10, as we have read together. Chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 13, we have an extended interlude of consolation concerning the routing of God's enemies. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, we have the God angel, his little book, and the end of all things foretold. Chapter 11, which we'll consider God willing this evening, verses 1 and 2, we have the sacred measures, the court of the Gentiles. Chapter 11, verses 3 through 14, the two witnesses, the war against them, their death, resurrection, ascension, and victory. And then in chapter 11, verses 14 through 19, we'll have that 
third woe, the Lord reigning with his Christ. So that brings us then to chapter 10. Verses 1 through 4, we have the God angel described and the thunderings sealed up. The apostle says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. He's no ordinary angel, no servant angel. He is a mighty angel descending and coming down, not falling like Wormwood, who is a star in heaven and fell, but descending, coming down in power and glory. And notice the description. He is clothed with a cloud. Now we'll look at the glory as we consider from Romans 9, one of the benefits Israel had was the glory of God. So notice, when God came down, how did he come? In Exodus 16, verse 10. He came in clouds of judgment and glory. Darkness surrounds the Lord, Psalm 97, verse 2. The clouds are said to be the chariots of God, Psalm 104, verse 3. This is no mere angel. This is God angel. This is the angel of the Lord. This is Christ himself. Now the prophet declaring the truth to his church. Remember, he was seen in a throne room as the lion of the tribe of Judah, unsealing the document as a king. Then he was seen as our intercessor, a priest offering up our prayers with his own incense and taking the coals and casting them down with the trumpets. Now what will we see? We will see him as a prophet with two witnesses coming forth to speak on his behalf, as we'll see God willing in chapter 11. Notice here, he's clothed with a cloud and has a rainbow upon his head. We saw the throne have a rainbow about it in chapter 4, verse 3 of this book. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, there is likewise a rainbow surrounding the vision of God himself. Now, remember, what is the rainbow? Remember what God said to Noah? I will make my covenant with thee. I will establish my covenant. Another way of referring to it is a testament. This is my inheritance I'm passing on to you, Noah. So here, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to ensure that the heirs receive the goods. We've talked about the sealing of the heirs. We've talked about the unfolding of the book. Here now, he has this rainbow about his head. James Durham comments on this rainbow. Our blessed Lord Jesus, being often suspected to be forgetful of his covenant, and being now to give warning of the deluge of wrath which was to come upon the anti-Christian world, he doth thus appear to evidence his mindfulness of his covenant, both in the overruling of the church's affliction and his enemy's ruin. Look at all these demons coming forth from hell. You remember in the prior chapters, they could kill, they could sting, they could destroy with fire. What is the church to say? Has Christ forsaken us? Has he forgotten us? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Arise, O Lord, and scatter thine enemies. He will remember. He's bringing a flood upon them. He's going to destroy them as in a moment, as when the flood came upon the ancient world. A rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun. Do you remember when Christ was transfigured? 
when his face shone like the sun. In chapter 1, verse 16, we saw the same thing. John Gill comments on this face of sun. It shows us the beauty, the loveliness, the amiableness of his person, which renders him as the sun delightful to behold, and of the majesty of his person, and the manifestations of himself to the great comfort, pleasure, and refreshment of his saints. There's nothing more glorious than those days of sun that follow the doom of winter. When everything comes to life and the sun shines in its heat and again you go outside and you don't need to wear boots and you don't need a heavy coat and you don't fear the storm. Why? Because the sun is out and the sun is glorious and the sun is life-giving and the sun is warm. Remember, this is the same sun that when Wormwood was turned into a polyon and he unlocked the bottomless pit, what happened? The sun was darkened. The loveliness and glory and majesty of Christ clouded over with error and falsehood. Here he shines forth in the fullness of his revelation in his testament as the glorious God angel. What about his feet? Pillars of fire. Do you remember when God led them out of Egypt? He was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire at night. And do you remember he was a wall of fire to their adversaries, the Egyptians, to destroy and devour, whether the Western or the Eastern Antichrist and all their forces? What can Christ do to them? Destroy them in a moment with fire, as we shall see. He can consume the adversaries of his people as stubble. He can guide and give light to his people unto their promised inheritance, the God angel. Notice then the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. His sovereign power is hidden in the clouds. His testamental promise is secured by the rainbow. His face is as the sun, life-giving, full of strength and healing in his wings. His feet ensure that we shall come at last to the promised land despite all the Egyptian and worldly opposition. Beloved saints, meditate on the truth held forth in these similitudes, in these mysteries. Christ sovereignly rules. He secures his promises to us. He gives grace now and glory hereafter. He'll be a wall of fire to our enemies. He will guide us to his promised inheritance. All these bad things work for our good. Verse 2. What does the God angel have in his hand? A sealed book? A book of mysteries? A book off in a corner that no one has the right to look at. No, open book. He had in his hand a little book open. Now there is a word, logion, in Greek, which means an oracle. Logos is a word. Logion is a little word or an oracle, an utterance that's brief and terse and to the point. Now there's also a biblos, which means a book. And then here we have what is a biblaridion, a little book, a terse book, right to the point. What is it saying? This book, this little book, 
is not sealed, but published. It is open. It is in the power of the hand of Christ, this little book, as an oracle, a word to be what? Read, published, preached, applied, and lived. Remember the fountains and rivers of waters? What happened to them? Befouled. They were made bitter waters. You remember this? Because wormwood fell, and he caused wormwood to infect the waters. And then later in his course of anti-Christian destruction, he became a polyon and darkened out the sun. We're going to see him as a demon in chapter 11 coming forth out from the hellish pit. But notice here, what does Christ have? He has a word published. He has the sun shining, not covered over, not befouled with bitterness. This is the pure word. The oracles will again be published. There will be a renewal. John must preach again, and not in his own person, but in two witnesses on his behalf. Durham again says, The gospel should be again brought to light, notwithstanding that during the reign of Antichrist it seemed to men impossible. Do you remember the 200 million strong army with snakes in their tails and fire that issued forth? How could you defeat such an army? With a little book. With a publication of that little book. And notice the God angel. What does he do with his feet? He sets his right foot where? Upon the sea. And where's his left foot? Upon the earth. In other words, all authority is given to me. I rule over the raging of the sea and over the nations of the earth. I am God, angel, he's saying. All power in heaven and upon earth. I am king of kings. I am Lord of lords. And the Antichrist is a usurper to claim such power and dominion. Christ rules over all things. And he has promised to restore his kingdom and reassert his rights. As we'll see in chapter 11, he actually has his temple measured. And it's not measured with a tape measure, it's measured with a rod of a king. The king's measure will measure the altar and the temple and them that worship there. And those ungodly men will not be measured, they'll be kicked out into the court of the Gentiles. But here notice, post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. The reign of Antichrist, his rage, rise to power and falsehood, the scourge of the Turk upon the watch of that Antichrist will be followed by what? The reestablished dominions of Jesus Christ, the king and head of his church with the little book in his hand. Let us rejoice in the rise of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the ruin of Rome, both pagan and papal. He promises they will be overthrown, not without a fight, but they shall be in the end. Let us work for the publication of this little book, for the assertion of the crown rights of Jesus Christ, for the prophetic ministry of the Son of God by the ordinary means of grace, that it might go forth with power for the glory of our Redeemer, to the overthrow of the man of sin. Here the Lord Jesus 
cries with a loud voice, a mega voice, a megaphone, as the prophets would declare the will of God, going forth and speaking forth his word, so Christ speaks. And notice, when he speaks with this prophetic declaration and swearing, what does it sound like? A lion, which is the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king and ruler of the people of God. He bellows forth, authoritatively yes as a prophet with a word in his hand but also as a king he is the king prophet his kingship infuses his prophetic voice his word is law his declarations are dictates his oracles are ordinances he is a king and a prophet I note then that though Christ has three offices prophet priest and king each office interpenetrates and informs the others. In other words, is Christ a priest simply and that's it? No. He is a royal priest. He is a prophetic priest. Is he a king simply? No. He is a prophetic king. He is a priestly king. Is he merely a prophet? No. He is a kingly prophet and he is a priestly prophet. His offices interpenetrate one another. There is one Christ, prophet, priest, and king. We cannot choose then some favored office of Christ. You know, I just want Jesus to tell me what to do. I want him to rule me by his laws. I just want him as a king. Don't tell me about his priestly sacrifice and intercession. Don't tell me about the wisdom and knowledge of the revelation of the will of God. I don't want that. I just want orders. Tell me what to do. Crush my adversaries. Well, no. All we need is Jesus to atone for our sins as our priest. We just need him to do everything for us. Don't tell me about Jesus giving orders to me. Don't tell me about the wisdom and knowledge of revelation. No, I just want a priest. This leads to antinomianism. I just want a priest. I don't want a king. Legalism is where we just have a king and we have no priest. And then the prophetic notion is, well, I just want Jesus to inform my mind. I want him to fill my head with information. Don't tell me what to do. Don't atone for my sins. Just make me smart. Christ has three offices. Let us believe and live under those three offices of Christ. A balanced Christology. Yes, he is God, he is also man, he is mediator, he is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. And these are shown to us in these symbolic ways. Verse 3. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voice. Remember when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, what happened? There were thunders, weren't there? There was lightning Elijah called to God for rain, and what happened? It thundered, and rain came down. Samuel prayed to God against the Philistines, and God, what? Thundered upon them. The voice of the prophet cries out to God, and what does God do? He answers with thunder to judge the adversaries. The two witnesses shall withhold rain, we're told in chapter 11. They too are prophets. That does not reign except according to their word, just as Elijah. The judgment upon the Antichrist is to begin by these prophetic utterances of the voice of the God angel, the king prophet, 
a fullness of judgment, remember seven, the divine number and the number of creation, three and four together make seven, the fullness of God's judgment is coming on his adversaries. John is about to write, obeying the general rule. In chapter 1, verse 11, Christ the Alpha and Omega, what thou seest, write in a book, but now he says, don't. Not yet. This is for later. Seal it up for now. Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Then verses 5 through 7, we have the God-angel mediator swearing in testament regarding the mystery of God. Verse 5, the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, again, this is Christ our Savior, he lifted up his hand to heaven. Now remember, God has none greater than himself. So when God swears, does he lift up his hand to heaven? No, he swears by himself. So when our angel, our God angel here, when he lifts up his hands, he does so not as he is the son of God from all eternity, but as he is united to human nature, as he is our mediator, the God man. This is a solemn oath, a word of promise, a testament. He's going to utter, the testator is now going to utter his voice. He's going to swear by the ever-living God who gives everlasting life that there should be time no longer. In other words, this final word of prophecy concerns all that leads from that day till the end of time, till the judgment of all men, till there is no more history but all melds into eternity. This word of prophecy, this final testament, secures all things. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, and this here exposits what he's talking about, this swearing that Jesus makes, this interlude period, is still not yet in the seventh angel. We're still waiting for the seventh angel. Everything he's described with Christ or will describe in chapter 11 is prior to the seventh angel and the execution which comes at the end of chapter 11. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, what should happen in those days? He says, the mystery of God should be finished. Now this word mystery is extremely important. Paul said he was a minister of this mystery. Romans 11, verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Here's the mystery. The mystery of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the what? Mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Ephesians 5, 32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, 2 through 7, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he that now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. 
Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Did you know that in God's wisdom these are all one mystery? The mystery of the rejection of the Jews and the call of the Gentiles. The mystery of Christ mystically united to his church. The mystery of the preaching of the word of God. The mystery of iniquity and of Babylon the great. All these are one mystery in God's decree. Christ sums up this mystery and will cause it to all come to fruition in this final blowing of this trumpet. And what comes forth, the vials that follow. This secret decree is made manifest. That is the mystery. It entails the incarnation of Christ, his death, his burial and resurrection, the rejection of the Jews, the call of the Gentiles, the restoration of the Jews, the fall of the angel star wormwood, his corrupting the pure waters of life, the working of the mystery of iniquity, his ascending to the throne of iniquity as the mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, the mystery of her overthrow, the marriage of the Lamb's lawful wife, Christ and his church, the consummation of all things, the resurrection of the body. This is the mystery he's going to fulfill. The summing up of all things, beginning with the preaching of this little book. Accept no substitutes. This is the mystery of God. Christ will fulfill all these things. He will ruin and destroy the whore Babylon, mystery Babylon. He will fulfill the mystery of the call of all nations and the restoration of the Jews. He will unite himself at last to his bride, the church, and he will raise us and transform us in the twinkling of an eye. And note verse 7, as, all this, as he hath declared unto his servants the prophets... You see again the prophetic theme. All the matters that we see as mysterious and revealed in the scriptures were also shadowed forth in the Old Testament. The rejection of the Jews, the call of the Gentiles, mystery Babylon. Did you know there was a northern kingdom? Do you know that's an anti-Christian kingdom? that usurps the authority that belongs to God's true Messiah and says, no, we will establish our own kingdom, thank you very much. That is anti-Christianism. The marriage of Christ and his church, Psalm 45, Song of Solomon. The mystery of God being united together with his people. All these mysteries were spoken before by the servants of God, the prophets. Then verses 8 through 11. The God angel mediator's testament is revived and a ministry appointed after darkness the light shines forth. Verse 8, The voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Here's a, a most sure revelation. God spoke to me with his own voice from heaven. Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel. Here's the mystery of the gospel. Standing open in his hand, go and take that little book. Take it to yourself. The final age, this final epoch, this opened prophecy, this manifest and declared will to all nations, you take and you eat it. The angel stands upon the earth and the sea. He has all authority and dominion to overthrow his adversaries, to fill up the mystery of God. And so what does John do? He goes to the angel and he doesn't just take it. Notice out of deference, what does he do? 
He requests, give me the book. Give me the little book, verse 9. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up. Now this may remind you of the book of Ezekiel. When Ezekiel was given a message to preach, you know what it was? A book. You know what he had to do with the book? He had to eat it up. Do you know what it tasted like in his mouth? Sweet. Do you know what it was like in his belly? Bitterness. The whole thing. It's exactly right out of Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3. The message that God gave to Ezekiel to prophetically determine the truth of the future of Israel and Judah, to declare to them the word of Almighty God, now he says, John, this is for all nations. This is for the peoples of the earth, or he doesn't say all, he says many. Take this and eat it. Speak this forth. Let it become digested by you. Let it come into you. Meditate upon what it says. Then deliver it to these people. Verse 9, it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. The first taste of the word of God is sweet. But then when you see the judgments that are coming, when you see the persecutions and wars against the saints of the Most High God, oh, it will be bitter, he tells him. I note then that this little book of prophecy is a new prophecy from the sealed prophecies of chapter 5. It is different from the trumpets. This is an open, not a sealed book. This leads to the end of time. It does not have things that succeed it. This book is poised to say there's one more woe, one more trumpet, and then there's more to follow until time is no more. This is the ending prophecy for the history of God's purpose, God's mystery. Let us then read with understanding the things set before us, distinguishing those things that differ. This prophecy is of a different scope, a different time, a different series of events, and will follow upon the execution of the third woe. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's telling him. Thomas Goodwin, which book contains another distinct prophecy to be given anew unto John, which therefore he is bidden to eat as Ezekiel of old was, and he should be enabled to receive and write a new prophecy, as appears chapter 10, verses 9 and 11. Which new entire prophecy begins chapter 12, after this angel had further, by word of mouth, a while discoursed what should be the state and face of his purest churches in the western part. So here we have it. God is opening up to us a new vista in his history, something that succeeds all of these middle portions and something that begins with his holy word. Verse 10, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. Let us learn with John to consume, to digest, to take in the word of God and let it become part of us. William Perkins says, That is, by study and meditation, to digest and settle it in our hearts. John obeys the voice that is given to him. He eats, and then he's told in verse 11 the following, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Here is a renewal of the prophecy. 
The prophecy has died off. It's been in abeyance. Now it's coming back. Now it's going to be declared and preached again. A renewal shadowed forth in John himself. John will be long dead when these witnesses come, but it will be John speaking through them. It will be the apostles speaking through those who preach this little book. And we will see this, God willing, in chapter 11, where the faithful preaching of God's word comes forth to demolish the kingdom of the man of sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, And then shall that wicked be revealed. Remember, there was one who withheld him. Once that one who lets gets out of the way, the wicked will be revealed, he says, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's what we'll see in the succeeding chapters. The man of sin will be eaten away by what? The breath of the mouth of Christ. And then when Christ returns at the end, what will happen to Antichrist's kingdom? Completely and utterly ruined by the brightness of his coming. The conflict then is foretold here, laid out in more detail in chapters 11 and following. A renewal of preaching of God's word, the light of the sun shining brightly from Jesus Christ, no more smoke of the abyss. This fallen pastor, this star angel of apostasy, his kingdom will decrease and Christ's kingdom will increase before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Many, not all. Here we're told of the times of the Protestant Reformation when the kingdom of Wormwood and of Antichrist is pushed back how? By the little book, by the two witnesses, as we shall see, God willing, this evening from chapter 11. And thus far the exposition of Revelation chapter 10. 